from Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. The Illinois General Assembly is back with the start of a new legislative session. What are some of the key issues that are on the table and things we should watch for going forward? We'll discuss those and also a task force has some ideas for increasing local journalism. That and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. We have two guests this week. Brendan Moore, a reporter for Lee Enterprises, is with us. And Brendan, always good to have you back on the show. Always happy to be on, Sean. Thanks for having me. Also, Alex Degman with WBEZ also covers state government and politics for Illinois Public Radio stations. And Alex, it's always good to have you with us as well. Hey, Sean. Good to be with you guys. So, Alex, I'll go to you first because one of the issues that's probably the most pressing for lawmakers has to do with the migrant situation that's happening in Chicago. And now we're seeing some of the migrants being bused to other communities in the state as well. There is talk about some money in the state budget to help the migrant situation. Well, the migrant situation in Chicago is uh, it, it's it's changing a little bit in scope because of the time of the year it is. We heard uh, a few days ago. In fact, I think this was, this was last week. Governor Pritzker actually asked Texas Governor Greg Abbott to uh, stop sending them because of the cold. And, uh, you know, he publicly said that that's not an option. But then we found out that, you know, there haven't been any migrants bust in since he made that statement. But um, it's changing a little bit because now we're starting to see uh, migrants, as you mentioned, not just being dropped off in the city, but also in surrounding suburbs and sometimes in downstate communities. So there's starting to be the question, not just about financing, but also legislatively, is there something that state lawmakers can do to create a little bit of uniformity? Uh, the governor mentioned that a little bit this week when he was uh, touring the state to talk about education funding. But there need there, but he uh, put forth the idea that perhaps legislators can work on something to create a little bit more uniformity if one suburb or community creates uh, some sort of a some sort of an ordinance to prohibit buses from dropping people off. For example, should that be should that be you know uniform? Should all communities be allowed to do that? So that's the first thing, and then the second thing is that the state has already you know spent upwards of half a billion dollars on the migrant crisis. So legislatively. As we start to enter into budget talks, which are if they're not beginning now, they're going to beginning they're going to start soon. Um, you're going to see probably some consternation among lawmakers, particularly uh, progressive lawmakers, as they fight for resources. There aren't as many resources in the state budget as there were, um, you know, two, three years ago. And even when the migrant crisis started in 2022, so the tensions that have been starting to simmer. Uh, over the last few months are going to get a little bit more heated as, for example, members of uh, various factions of the Democratic caucus are going to start asking, is this the is this what we should be using the money for? Or perhaps should we be using it for other needs, the needs that have been longstanding that we haven't been addressing? Hmm. Brendan, does this have the uh, potential to split the Democratic caucus? We also know Republicans aren't in favor of a lot of extra spending on the migrant situation. So uh, is, is it a, is it going to be an issue that we could we could see some real trouble here for Democrats going forward? Yeah, I think that it may create a wedge within the Democratic caucus. I, we've already seen, uh, especially up in Chicago, which has been the epicenter of this crisis in Illinois, where you have 
some lawmakers in some very underserved communities, particularly uh, in, in impoverished uh, Black communities on Chicago's south and west sides that are kind of been asking, where are the resources for my community? And I think that, especially as Alex mentioned, there's not as many resources to go around uh, uh, moving forward in the budget as there may have been in the past couple of years. Uh, it's going to get uh, a little bit tense as as these budget negotiations uh, really start to heat up. Um, we've already kind of gotten a preview of how the legislature might deal with this crisis. Uh, earlier this week, House Speaker Chris Welch announced that uh, there's a working group to uh, come up with legislative solutions to uh, the, the the crisis. Uh, a lot of that will uh, presumably include more money, more resources uh, to help Chicago and other communities uh, deal with the influx, uh, but also uh, to some of the uh, uh, divisions. Um, Senate President Don Harmon told the Tribune earlier this week that uh, there's not going to be a, a funding bill just for migrants, that any bill is going to have to deal with uh, uh, longstanding needs in underserved communities. So I think that there's going to be an effort to try to package anything that happens with the migrants to, uh, uh, you know, trying to fund other things uh, in uh, that will help communities that 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 also need uh, resources. But it's not going to be easy. Uh, clear, obviously, it's an election year. And I think that uh, a lot of uh, a lot of lawmakers are hearing from their constituents who uh, maybe aren't happy with uh, the resources going to migrants or having them, you know, in shelters, uh, in temporary housing, in in their neighborhoods. Uh, so it's not going to be easy. Um, and 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 you know, we the the end game here is not clear, but uh, but it's obvious though that they're going to have to at least account for what's already been spent and. Clearly, this crisis is not going away, so uh, they're going to have to do something. Um, but what it is is still uh, very much, uh, very much unclear. So we'll just have to wait and see as they get into budget talks over the next few months. Yeah, and Charlie, uh, we've talked on the show too about as as Brendan said, this problem's not only not going away; it may actually get worse as we creep closer to the Democratic National Convention. More migrants might be bussed into Chicago because of all the media attention that will be placed on the city. So this problem has to be dealt with in, in some fashion, and it needs probably to happen sooner than later. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it, for, for lawmakers to try to uh, put something together as comprehensive as, say, what the Senate president is talking about? Yeah, I think it's, it's probably going to be very, very difficult. And in the long run, it may not be particularly effective. As we've said on the show and in other venues, and in my case, almost every time I've asked, I, I've, I've said the solution has to come from D.C. and it has to be allowing these migrants, particularly the folks from Venezuela who want to work, allow them to work, to get work permits, waive the fee. The, the folks who are coming over, these, these migrants don't have a whole lot of money. Most of them are penniless, so they can't afford the fees for the permit. Let them get permits, let them work, because that would solve a lot of problems. It would give them resources to be able to actually go in the market and find apartments. It would allow them maybe to be able to, to feed their kids and feed themselves. 
So in, in my mind, the long range solution has to come from DC and it has to be authorizing these folks to work and the jobs are there. The business community, particularly in the hospitality industry, is anxious for more workers. I know here in Springfield, some restaurants that used to be open later are now closed sooner. One of my favorite restaurants used to be open until like eight, nine o'clock at night. Now it closes at two and it's because they don't have workers. And so there, there are jobs available. There are people who are willing to work, but this, this requirement to get the federal work permit stands in the way. So I think that's probably the most important thing that needs to be done. But as, as we've mentioned already, as Alex and Brendan pointed out, there's going to be conflict between the folks who are advocating for these new arrivals and people who represent communities that have been underfinanced, underserved for generations. And as a matter of fact, even the Republicans have taken up the argument that, well, we should look out for our own first. We should be taking care of our own people before we worry about these other folks. Now, some of the the stuff is really uninformed. B before we started the show, I mentioned to you guys, I saw a comment online, somebody who said, well, we ought to send them back to Mexico, which was the first country they arrived at after they left Venezuela. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, unless they chartered a flight, they probably, when they left Venezuela, they went to Colombia, then they went to Panama, then they went to Costa Rica, then they went to Nicaragua, then they went to Honduras, and they went to Guatemala before they even got to Mexico. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I think some of the people who are catering to the, the, the anti-immigrant crowd, the folks who say, well, lock them all up or send them all back to where they came from, it's going to be difficult to put anything together, but I think it's it's not going to be a separate piece of legislation. It'll be part of the overall budget agreement. And the difficulty there is that even though we're going to end the current fiscal year on June 30th with a surplus, the governor's office of management and budget is predicting for next year, we're going to have a almost $900 million deficit unless changes are made in spending priorities or in raising funds. Also coming up likely in this session will be at least some discussion regarding abortion and abortion rights. And Brendan, you, you one of those people that think that we may see some type of uh, something on the ballot coming up regarding abortion in Illinois? Yeah, so obviously Illinois lawmakers ever since Governor Pritzker has been in office have taken a significant amount of legislative action to uh, codify abortion rights into state law. Uh, Illinois has kind of become an island in the Midwest uh, for abortion rights, as several surrounding states have enacted uh, essentially total abortion bans. Uh, the next step would be for uh, lawmakers to put a constitutional amendment uh, question on the ballot uh, in November uh, that would uh, enshrine it into the state constitution. Uh, whether or not it happens, it remains to be seen. Uh, lawmakers would have to agree on language. Uh, for the question, and they would have to uh, vote. Uh, I believe it is a, a, a three-fifths requirement uh, to get it on the ballot. Charlie can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong on that. But um, the, basically, uh, this would be, uh, abortion has become a, a significant, uh, it's always been a significant issue in, 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 in electoral politics, but ever since the fall of Roe, uh, it's really been a galvanizing force to to turn out uh, uh, Democratic voters. And so 
I think Democrats see both a, I mean, they think it's the right thing to do policy-wise, but they also see an electoral benefit, particularly uh, in the Chicago suburbs uh, where uh, abortion is uh, probably uh, considered more of a, a, a pressing issue uh, among a lot of, of voters in those areas. Um, so I think the question is whether they can agree on language. Uh, it doesn't have to run this year. It could happen in 2026. Um, I think it will happen at some point, but uh, um, it's just a matter of uh, if they can get it done this year. Um, you know, so we'll see. Alex, you agree with that, that uh, we're likely going to see something come up? Yeah, I think, uh, like Brendan mentioned, not only is it's not only do a lot of Democratic lawmakers think that this is the right thing to do, but it's also politically expedient. Um, if they have a very important if they, if they have an issue on the ballot that's very important to a lot of Democratic voters, that means the Democratic voters are going to show up in November. So in 2024 um, is probably going to be a year that Democrats are going to want to get as many Democrats or if not just Democrats, people who value uh, having abortion rights in this country. Uh, they're going to try to get as many of those people as they can to the polls, especially this year. Now, granted, um, Illinois is not in great danger, uh, so to speak, of, uh, of voting for a Republican for president, at least not this year. And the Democratic supermajorities in both the House and Senate of the state legislature are pretty safe. However, um, there's just a lot of momentum this year. Governor Pritzker has thrown a lot of his weight behind a national effort to uh, make abortion a big focus of this election year. So, I mean, the momentum is there. But as Brendan said, it's just a matter of coming together on the language and, you know, how to get it on the ballot in the first place. You're listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, also Brendan Moore with Lee Enterprises, and Alex Degman with WBEZ. Alex and Brendan, just going to give you guys a, a few seconds on, on a couple of different topics here uh, just to see where these things stand. We have talked about them th in the past. In fact, kind of left hanging, wondering if they might be coming up again here in the spring session. One of those is something called Karina's Bill. Alex, uh, is this likely to, uh, it seems as though it's already getting quite a bit of a push. What is it and what's the likelihood that this might get through? So Karina's Bill essentially says if there's a person who has a FOID card and has firearms in their home, and they're the subject of an order of protection, Illinois State Police or local police agencies would have to go remove that firearm from the home, especially if they live in the same household as the person who took out the order of protection. Karina Gonzalez took out an order of protection against her husband, but he was allowed to have his guns in the home, and she ended up being shot and killed. And her, uh, her kid, or she was not the only one in the home. Uh, her child survived, and they are on a big push to get this passed. And it's already fairly far along in the process. It is, um, I think, it, if I remember right, it only needs to go through one chamber. And that's why so many advocates uh, during last fall's veto session were so frustrated that this couldn't get through. So um, I think that you're going to see a pretty big push because advocates for uh, especially this type of legislation, they're very serious about getting this done. So uh, you'll probably see them back in the Capitol, and I do think that that's going to happen this session. Okay. And Brendan, a quick update on what is called Invest in Kids. This was a uh, tax credit program to help the lower-income students attend private schools. Uh, this did expire at the end of 2023, but not everybody's given up on that. Is there any discussion out there that this could be coming back in some form here in 2024? 
You know, Sean, I have not heard a lot of discussion about that since uh, veto session. Uh, I think the general uh, opinion among, at least among Democrats uh, in under the dome is that this program is as good as dead. Um, we saw this week, actually, uh, there were two Catholic schools uh, in the Chicago suburbs, I believe in Cicero and Berwyn, that announced that they are going to be closing after the school year. Uh, and they essentially blamed the expiration of investing kids because about half of the uh, students that attended those schools, those parochial schools, uh, were investing kids uh, scholarship recipients. So uh, I don't think there's a lot of hope, uh, given the supermajority uh, Democrats uh, are split on this. Uh, uh, the teachers unions uh, uh, always hated the program. Uh, progressives don't like the program. And uh, House Speaker Chris Welch has made it clear that uh, he's not going to put anything on the board that doesn't have uh, at least a majority of Democrats and investing kids was far from that. I won't put a percentage on it, but I'll just say very, very slim chance that happens. All right. Well, something that's a new approach to what has been a longstanding problem the loss of local journalism in many communities in Illinois. And Charlie, you've been a journalist a long time, so I feel you're a good person here to talk about this. We know the problem exists. I think most people understand that. Newspapers, if they still are around in many communities, have gotten smaller, a lot fewer people working there. A task force was formed, Local Journalism Task Force, it was called, and it's been studying this problem. They say since 2005, Illinois has lost 86% of journalist jobs at newspapers. 232 local newspapers have folded. So they've come out with some recommendations in Illinois. What's your thoughts on, on what you've seen so far, Charlie? You have a difficulty in terms of how are we going to fund these operations? Some of the, the ideas suggested by this journalism task force would not directly benefit publications uh, one of them, for example, was to say that if I'm a taxpayer and I subscribe to the, the local newspaper, which I do, the State Journal Register and also the Chicago Tribune, I would get a tax credit for to help defray the cost of those subscriptions. Or another one would be that small businesses that advertise in a local paper would get tax credits for those advertisements. There has to be some way found to to finance. There's a couple of good examples, I think, in, in Illinois. One is Capital News Illinois, which is a, a not-for-profit operation, and it's funded largely by a grant from the McCormick Foundation, as well as help from the uh, Illinois Broadcasters Association and some other local, what would you say, do-gooder groups. And this has enabled Capital News Illinois to have the the largest bureau in Springfield with reporters in Chicago, the Metro East and downstate Illinois uh, that cover basically state government issues very thoroughly. And they're run in, gosh, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of different media outlets, print, broadcast online throughout the state. And it's been a very successful operation. And I should mention in full disclosure, I'm on the board of the Illinois Press Foundation, which is like the sponsoring entity for Capital News Illinois. And we've been very, very pleased with the success we've had. 
and another in the Chicago area is called Block Club Chicago. And they have an army of local reporters, each of whom covers a particular neighborhood or two neighborhoods. So there might be somebody who would report uh, on Lincoln Park. There might be somebody else who reports on Englewood. And they're very, and, and it's all online. They're very hyper-localized, but they do a good job of covering those communities. So those are a couple of examples we have here in Illinois that I think are working well. Some of the other ideas that the task force has brought forward, I think, are also good. The idea of providing scholarships, I'm all for that. I was a former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program, and I was always trying to get scholarships for our students. So this is a, a good start. We'll have to see where it goes. The difficulty is that a lot of the newspapers, what used to be independently owned newspapers, are now owned by these major conglomerates. And there would be some hesitancy on the part, I think, of lawmakers to want to provide some kind of a benefit that might help, for example, the, the folks who, who own the Tribune, Alden Capital, and, and many other newspapers, which are seen in a lot of quarters as just being sort of super greedy venture capitalists who don't give two hoots about the quality or what's going on with with the newspaper, the traditional role of journalism, they just see their newspaper organizations as being uh, a way to make money. Alex, you've followed this this uh, problem of local journalism disappearing in many communities, and your, your thoughts on what you heard this week and, uh, and, and overall on this problem. Well, it is a pretty... It's, it's a pretty glaring problem. And actually, I mean, one of the favorite or one of my favorite stories that I covered over the last year or so was going to Macomb and uh, seeing what's happening there when and I went there the day that Gannett closed up shop entirely, leaving pretty much uh, leaving Macomb and McDonough County without a local newspaper, without a reporter. And that was pretty glaring because when I first got there, there were two dailies and they were both fully staffed. So in the span of 15 years, um, Macomb lost a lot of journalism and Macomb's not alone like there the report showed that that's not unique Illinois lost more newspapers than pretty much anybody else in the country and to be fair the newspaper still exists but it's you know it's not what it was so what we're finding is that in some communities particularly ones with uh, very heavy journalism backgrounds uh, the community is stepping up and they're making community newspapers and they're starting off not making a whole lot of money but eventually the community's getting behind them. They're starting to buy ads. They're starting to place required city notices. Uh, people are calling their reporters with tips. Reporters are going out into the communities. So in addition to, uh, Charlie was talking about uh, Capital News Illinois, um, nonprofit journalism, these community startups, uh, and just people that actually care about doing this and people that are really, you know, they, they want to see this work that's going to be the future. And I think the local journalism task force was a really good way to uh, not only highlight that, but also potentially offer solutions to maybe bolster funding a little bit to make journalism more viable in this economy. Because as they said, and as we always say, you know, it's, it's, it's an important thing to have local journalism and we should support it. And I also want to mention that our general manager at NPR Illinois, Randy Eccles, served on that task force. Let me switch gears with about a minute left here and give us an update, uh, Brendan, about a state lawmaker uh, from eastern Illinois. Uh, now he's been kicked off the ballot. What's going on there? 
Yeah, so State Representative Adam Niemerg, who represents a very rural district in East Central Illinois, got tossed from the ballot because he did not properly notarize his statement of candidacy, uh, a very basic requirement of candidates running for office. So he was the only candidate on the ballot, no, no other Republican filed, no Democrat filed. So he announced this week that he's going to wage a write-in campaign. Uh, basically, he is going to have to file with the, every election uh, authority in his district, and he's have to, he'll have to get at least 500 votes uh, in the primary uh, in order to be successful. Uh, it's not a guarantee, though, because uh, there has been some chatter that he might get a write-in challenge. Um, there's been some talk that the Illinois Education Association, uh, which has been involved in a primary in a neighboring district against uh, fellow Freedom Caucus member Blaine Wilhauer, uh, may may recruit a candidate. Uh, it's been a very fascinating, uh, uh, very very fascinating cycle for for the Freedom Caucus, the the arch conservative uh, group of lawmakers, uh, mostly from southeastern Illinois. Um, Niemer got tossed from the ballot. Uh, Blaine Wilhauer has a primary challenger. Uh, Brad Halberg has a primary challenger. Uh, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how things shake out in March. Okay, well, it's time for the notes from the field. Brendan, we will stay with you for your note. Yeah, so well, we have a panel of White Sox fans here. Uh, so I feel like I have to mention that uh, there was a report, a Sun-Times report earlier this week that stated that uh, the Sox are in serious discussions with related Midwest uh, real estate company uh, that owns a plot of land in the South Loop neighborhood of Chicago called the 78 uh, to possibly build a new ballpark there. Uh, the White Sox uh, uh, chairman Jerry Reinsdorf last summer had made comments about uh, possibly looking at a new destination uh, from Guaranteed Rate Field, the, the park the Sox have played in since 1991. Uh, they've been at 35th and Shields for more than 100 years uh, before Comiskey Park. Um, it So it's a very interesting idea because this would put them right downtown, uh, possibly with a nice skyline view. The question obviously will be, uh, who's going to pay for it? Uh, the Sox right now are in a state-owned facility. Uh, Governor Pritzker has made very clear he does not generally support public subsidies for uh, pro sports teams, but uh, nevertheless, an interesting development, uh, something to keep an eye on. Okay, Charlie? Well, when people think of tornadoes, the first thing that probably comes to mind for a lot of people, if they're uh, classical movies fans, is Dorothy and Kansas and the Wizard of Oz. Well, actually, last year, according to the U.S. National Weather Service, Illinois had the most tornadoes of any state, and it was more than triple the number it had in 2022. So we had 120 tornadoes, and usually the Weather Service says typically we're expected to have 55. In 2022, we only saw 39. So that's, I guess, one for the record books. All right. And Alex? Well, I'm going to do the thing that I always do uh, during Notes from the Field and Stick in Springfield, but I couldn't I, I, I couldn't help it because I really wanted to mention the passing of Carolyn Oxtoby. And I don't know if anybody really outside of Springfield, Sangamon County is aware of the contributions that Carolyn Oxtoby made to Springfield and specifically downtown Springfield. Um, just really since the 1970s, um, she has done so much to revitalize downtown. And if you've been here, 
since the 70s. You've probably seen some of her handiwork. In fact, uh, the first time I moved here in uh, 20, actually, no, I'm sorry, the second time I moved here in 2011, uh, she personally took me on a tour of one of her apartment buildings. Uh, couldn't have been nicer. And the apartments were really nice. Uh, didn't end up going with it because it wasn't what I was looking for at the time. But when I moved back here in 2022, um, I called up Tom. I called up Tom Ox to be her son because I know that they have all of these really cool spaces that they've taken such good care of in downtown. You know, Carolyn Oxtoby, um, I don't know that downtown Springfield would be where it is. And for that matter, my neighborhood, Enos Park, I don't know if I don't know if the development would have come up here without her paving the way the first time. Good point, And she will be missed. And that's all the time we have for State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler, Brendan Moore with Lee Enterprises, and Alex Degman of WBEZ and Illinois Public Radio. Find our show where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Just look for State Week. I'm Sean Crawford. And join us next time. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.